0: I said, I can't imagine leaving. Then he offered the salary he was going to offer. And I say, where do, where do I sign? So, I mean, it was all about the money at that point in my life. Ginger set me down and she said, you're going to turn yourself in today or I'm doing it for you. And the FBI said, no, your husband just confessed to a billion dollar crime that's going on for 12 years in a row. We either have to arrest him today or he has to start wearing a wire tomorrow. And that's the choice I had that day.
1: Welcome to the Resilient Faith at Work podcast, insight and inspiration to thrive at work. I'm Ken Kennard, and I'm joined by Dr. Chip Roper and Sarah Evers. This episode features our conversation with Mark Whitaker. He tells his personal story of how, as a young executive, he got caught up in a price-fixing scheme that ended up changing his life forever. This conversation was recorded on January 14th, 2021, and we're delighted to include him here in our podcast.
2: Mark Whitaker has a long history of corporate success. He earned his PhD from Cornell in his 20s and at age 32 was recruited to be the president of a biotech division and corporate VP at ADM, Archer Daniels Midland. When Mark plays the game, which Hollywood actor would be cast as you in the movie of your life, Mark can say Matt Damon. If you've seen The Informant, then you already know Mark's story. That movie is inspired by his time at ADM when Mark was an FBI informant. He wore a wire for three years and is now, more than 30 years later, the highest level executive to ever turn whistleblower in FBI history.
3: Well, that's quite a claim to fame there, Sarah. So let's talk about it. You know, for me, Mark's story tees up the following question. What happens when our relationship to our work becomes toxic? There are a lot of ways this this can happen. Workaholism, work-related anxiety, and then there are the specific vulnerabilities with which Mark had to deal. So what do we do when this happens to us and what do we do when this happens to someone we love? How about you, Sarah? What do you think?
2: Mark went through a dramatic, cinematic moral failure and greed consumed him. So I'm curious to hear what kinds of spiritual disciplines can anchor us against moral compromise at work and what about after we've fallen?
1: Yeah, that's a good um, point, Sarah. And I was thinking, you know, after we've fallen, it doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone around us, right? So I'm curious about his wife. You know, here's here's a woman whose husband just had this problem. And now how does she respond? Um, you know, <laughs> what what choices is she going to make when she discovers something's going on at work where her husband's going the wrong way?
3: Mark, it's great to have you with us. Uh, it's great to be together and, and to see you again. Uh, it'd be better to be in person, but uh, next best, best thing. Um, let's just jump right in. Let's, let's talk a little bit about your, um, your ascent, you know how, you, how you, you went to Cornell, you got a PhD, and you know, how did you end up at ADM, and what, what did that mean to you to get that, that job, that break?
0: Yeah, even during my, you know, I started my Ph.D. at Cornell at 22 in biochemistry. The average age is about 32 at that time. So I was probably eight or 10 years younger than most of the Ph.D. students in biochemistry. Graduated 25 and even then was very hyper ambitious. I think even to, to an unhealthy level. And I was working in Germany for four years responsible for acquisitions and mergers uh, with a company. And I was doing joint ventures with ADM. And the CEO uh, of ADM said, Look, you've been doing this with us a couple of years. Why don't you just join us? And I said, Well, I've been, I was two years in New York, four years with, uh, four years now in Germany, six years with this other company called Avonic, huge company. I said, I can't imagine leaving. And then he offered the salary he was going to offer. And I said, where do, where do I sign? So, I mean, it was all about the money at that point in my life. Uh, that was age 32 at that time.
3: So that's when you started with ADM. Yes. Um, and I assume you moved your family and relocated and settled in. and what I mean what was that like when you first started working there? And what well, what did you notice as, as time as, as you kind of got the feel of the culture and the way things worked?
0: Well, I think for who I was at that point, uh, chip, it was a, a really good fit because being hyper ambitious, they were all about bonuses and stock options. We were number 56 on the fortune 500, 70 billion in annual revenue, 30,000 employees, uh, us and cargo being the largest food additive companies in the world. So I was like a kid in a candy store. The CEO was 75. The president was 69 and I was divisional president at 32 reporting right to the vice chairman. So I was number four executive with the other executives
3: in their high sixties and seventies. So the future looked bright. Yes, it did. And what, and, and, What were some of the perks that went with that position that you had?
0: Well, my first week uh, there, I was assigned to Falcon 50. The seven top executives got uh, access to the seven Falcon 50s. And with being ranked number four executive, I had access anytime I wanted to 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 my own corporate jet. You know, owned by the company, but to use at any time. The CEO wanted to move to a smaller home. He was 30 years in a 13,000 square foot home with an eight car garage and horse riding stables where your kids could ride uh, in an inside arena. And uh, th- it was actually the home of John Daniels who founded Archer Daniels Midland over a hundred years earlier. So he lived in it, then the CEO I worked for lived in it for 30 years, and I bought that home my first month uh, working there. He actually gave me a down payment, he gave me a startup bonus that was the down payment and I was only one month at the company.
3: I so you're thirty-two years old, thirty-two years old, and you're living like a rock star. Yeah, I felt like I was
0: Bon Jovi. Had a little bit of blonde hair back then, blowing in the wind, the whole bit. But I was—I always say I was Justin Bieber before Justin Bieber.
3: Well, maybe in the next movie about you, Justin can play you, or he can write your <laughs> theme song. Um, where was your like? How did your how did your wife uh, react to this whole? I'm assuming it was a big upgrade in terms of your lifestyle and everything. This new job. What was that like?
0: I tell you, my wife became a Christian 10 years before me, and when we moved to, uh, from Frankfurt, Germany, to Decatur, Illinois, that's quite a move, by the way, uh, 80,000 people town in Decatur, Illinois, 30,000 are employees of ADM in this 80,000 people town, three hours south of Chicago. And I remember we met uh, the 69-year-old president, which was the number two in the company at a closed door first month. And I introduced him to my wife and he pointed out a window and he pointed out a yellow Ferrari and he said, I have about a dozen of those. Uh, and I, I was all excited. I thought, boy, I'm definitely in the right place. And I remember when he walked out, my wife said, I think we made the biggest mistake we ever made in our life. Wow. And
3: that was my first month there. And when she said things like that, how did you react?
0: I said, no, nah, Ginger, I said, this is the greatest opportunity ever. I, I mean, my base salary, you know, you're talking 30 years ago. The base salary was in the six figures with stock options and bonuses. It was well into the seven figures, uh, usually about two or three million a year, the eight years that I was there. And uh, I mean, I said, Ginger, this is the best opportunity ever. There's nothing better than this. And she was thinking the opposite, that we're heading the wrong direction. We're heading towards a train wreck.
3: And I guess she was right in some ways. (laughs) And you might have been right, too, in terms of how things have turned out. Um, and so it's a track I put you on. So how did, how did, where did things start to go south? Where did the, where did the price fixing piece of this all, how did, when did that start to come out and how did you first respond to it and talk, talk say some yeah. things about that.
0: I was president of the biotech division, a huge division. It became the largest fermentation products company in the world at that time, during that time. This would have been the late eighties, early nineties. And after I was there a couple of years, the three executives above me, the vice chairman, president, and CEO, they started building trust and credibility. So the vice chairman came back to my office after two years there, and he gave me a $100,000 check and 25,000 shares of stock. It was about a million dollars between the two. And it was not at a time that we'd get normal bonuses, so I thought it was kind of strange. But I was so greedy, I wasn't going to chase him down the hallway and give it back. And he came back an hour later, and he said, Mark, this was an hour after he gave that bonus. He said, I'm, "We're going to start showing you uh, how we do business at ADM. Something we haven't shared the last couple of years. And we're going to start including you in some of our meetings with our competitors." And that was when they started sharing with me how to how to price fix. But this was an hour after they gave me a million dollars, and I was hook, line, and sinker. I was in.
3: So obviously, the order they they that was intentional. The order was intentional, and and how long between when you had that meeting and they started to teach you how they did things and you talked to Ginger about it?
0: Well, they started teaching me about the next day. They started bringing me into meetings, uh, at flying two cartel me. The cartel was going on, it was proven in court about 12 years before I joined the company. So this wasn't a new cartel. So they started bringing me in meetings fairly quickly within the next day, because I was the young guy. The other guys were, were now in their 70s. One of them head towards 80. And about seven months later, Ginger set me down and she said, Mark, something's going on. She said, I've known you since you were in the eighth grade. I'm, she was in seventh grade and I was in eighth grade when we met. And she said, something's changed these last seven months uh, in 1992. And, and um, she said, you're on the phone a lot at night. You're something you're not telling me. And I started sharing with, with her how they're mentoring me t- uh, to really eventually take over this international cartel, this price fixing scheme. And, you know, she was a stay-at-home mom raising three young children, so there's a lot she didn't understand. So we had an hour or two conversation until she understood it, and she said, boy, Mark, this is outright theft.
3: I don't know if I can live with this. Then what, well, Then say what happened next.
0: Well, she said she was going to go back in her study and, and pray about it for, for a bit, and we talk about it later. This was November 5th, 1992, and she came back after she prayed for about an hour, and she said, Mark, uh, God led her to a decision. She said, you're involved with something for seven months, a billion-dollar theft a year. That's what the price fixing was, a billion-dollar theft a year for 12 years in a row. And she said, what a perfect time to turn yourself in with only involved seven months. She said, you're going to turn yourself in today or I'm doing it
3: for you. And, and what, how would you react to that? And Well,
0: first I spent a couple hours trying to say, Ginger, I could go to prison for breaking antitrust, antitrust laws, for price fixing. I said, the CEO is a billionaire and he's best friends with President Clinton. He flew to President, on President Clinton's uh, plane to President Nixon's funeral. I said, this company will totally destroy us. And I remember her saying, she said, you know what, Mark, my CEO is bigger than your CEO. And I said, Ginger, who is your CEO? And she said, Jesus. And I said, Ginger, I can't see Jesus, I can't feel him. But our CEO lives a few miles down the road and he's gonna destroy us. And she said, I'm telling you what, Mark, he's gonna, uh, God will protect us, but this is gonna to happen today. Wow. And did it? It did. It happened within a few hours. We were sitting four hours in front of the FBI. And i never forget. I was trying to weasel my self out of it. I thought, boy, I'm in the middle of something. I don't want to be in the middle here. And I remember the FBI saying, now, what are we talking about? What's going on here? And I said, you've got many more important things to do. I don't think this case is going to be worth talking about. And he said, well, how much money's involved? And I said, I don't think it's even worth talking about. You've got much higher priorities. And my wife said, well, he told me it was a billion dollar theft. He said a million dollars. And she said, no, a billion dollars. And he said a billion dollar. How long has this been going on? And I said you've got a lot more important things to do than this. And she said he told me it was going on for twelve years. So she shared everything that I shared with uh, with, with her that hour before.
3: Wow, it's amazing that uh, it's just amazing that she would do that and that.
0: God led her to do that,
3: and you didn't hurt her or anything. Like it's just that's just <laughs> amazing. That's so intense. Uh, that must have been really intense. Um, what, um, what'd you guys, what happened next? What did you guys do next? Well, we, we were
0: four hours, you know, four hours sharing with the FBI. It took them quite a while to pull everything out of me. Uh, you know, took Ginger sharing what she knew to kind of start bringing the truth out. And, I mean, I was a nervous wreck. I've never been involved with law enforcement, never been in front of the FBI, never even, at that point, had not even had a speeding ticket before. So I was a nervous wreck at that point in my life, early 30s. And I remember the FBI said, "Uh, look, this is a serious issue here. And my wife said, well, look, he's only seven months. We can go home now, right? You go tap phones or do whatever you do. And the FBI said, no, your husband just confessed to a billion-dollar crime that's going on for 12 years in a row. We either have to arrest him today or he has to start wearing a wire tomorrow. And that's the choice I had that day.
3: And so you chose to wear the the wire, you wore it for like over three years, Yes, every day, Uh, technology wasn't the same as it, you know, it was cumbersome process. What was like, what was a typical day wearing the wire like, Mark?
0: It was a nervous wreck. They'd wire me, they'd shave my chest at six o'clock in the morning, four FBI agents, they they uh, tape microphones to my chest. They had a tape recorder on my back, a big one with an athletic band, a second tape recorder in a briefcase. They built a special notebook that had a third one, just in case one of them wasn't working. They had three different recorders, and then they'd say, Mark, if these guys catch you, they're going to kill you. This is serious stuff. This is an international uh, cartel that involves billions of dollars, because ADM was earning one billion a year, but there's 11 companies involved. And they said, these guys are gonna kill you if they catch you. I lost 60 pounds. People at work thought I had cancer. It was the most stress that I've ever went through in my
3: life. It sounds, it sounds grueling. Um, how did that end? How did the wire-wearing period end? Well, it ends when they have enough evidence. And first
0: they thought it'd be a, a couple months would be enough evidence. But then one of the co-defendants would brag as they're on tape and video, because there was a green lamp that also made the video the video feed. And as they're on ta- audio and video, someone would say, hey, we did this on citric acid, we made $250 million last year. It became a second case. Then someone would brag about lactic acid, it became a third case. It became multiple cases over three years. And I just wanted all, this, all these guys just to shut up and quit talking about all their legal activity.
3: So it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yes. bigger. Say something about the lamp. That's an interesting detail.
0: Well, I would tell the FBI where the meetings were going to be and they would be like the Shangri-La Hotel in Singapore, the Mandarin Hotel in Hong Kong, Four Seasons Hotel in Chicago. I would tell them where it's going to be. They would meet with Interpol and the embassy and get all the court documents to get and make the voltage comp- uh, change because the voltage was changed in Asia and Europe and so on. And they would get that green lamp in that room, and they would be in the next room, and the video camera was in the green lamp, and they had a remote control, the FBI did. They could control and zoom in on whoever the person was that was talking at the time. And the amazing thing is, Chip, that green lamp was at two or three meetings a month with the same 11 guys for three years, and they didn't see it, and it was sitting five feet from them. Wow. The same lamp falling wow. around the world. And I often say, thank God there wasn't wo- a woman criminal among us, because I'm convinced a woman would say, you know what? That green lamp is following us around the world.
3: Yeah, the Shangri-La and the uh, Four Seasons probably don't use the same lamp, right? Yeah, they would've, she would have noticed. <laughs> and it looked
0: like a yard sale lamp. How it? How no one noticed, though. It showed me how greed blinds you. A greed addiction, how it blinds you for them not to see it.
3: Interesting. So this all, eventually, they you somehow survive uh, wearing the wire all these year, three years plus. Yeah, they get enough evidence, and then this is going to become a, you know, this is going to go to trial. What, what happens then to you?
0: Well, the last uh, few months, uh, by the way, after my third month, uh, the FBI was so appreciative of risking my life, they went to U.S. Attorney in Chicago and got a full immunity for me agreement for me to never be charged, never go to prison. They were so appreciative. All I had to do is not break any laws, except the laws they know I was breaking working with them, not break any laws, and I would never do one day of prison. But that last few months when I knew the case was coming to an end, and here at that point I'm only 38, 39 years old by that point, you know, after a few years wiring the wire, and I knew the case was coming to an end, and I had these millions of dollars of stock options. Like stock options, if I could exercise that day, would have been $9 million. Keep in mind, this is 30 years ago too. Right. And I thought, boy, I've got to you know, and it was two years away from the exercise date. And they told me I had about six or seven months left to wear the wire. And I thought, I can't leave that on the table. Who's going to hire somebody that wore a wire against their own company for three years? It's easier to get a job as a felon than an informant and a whistleblower. And that's true. So, I mean, I, I knew that for a fact. So I thought, I'm not going to be able to get another job. And I'm only 10 years out of college by that point and young in my career. So what I did, I started writing checks to myself to make up for that $9 million. I wrote five checks. And I thought if I ever went to trial, I could show the stock option documents that I have that, look, the company was going to owe me that. So I only took what was owed to me. And so I wrote those $9 million check and it changed everything because then I became a defendant for fraud.
3: Right. And so then, um, but they still offered you a deal, right? They still offered you some kind of a plea deal or
0: they did, they did. The FBI came to meet with me when they heard about the 9 million, they said, Mark, we met with the prosecutors. We're going to give you a deal of a lifetime. We know you cracked under pressure and you wouldn't have made that decision if you had not wore a wire for three years and we're falling apart under pressure. So we know we put you under pressure. No one should ever wear a wire for three years. They have a guideline now to not let anybody wear a wire longer than a year because of the meltdown they saw me for three years. So they said, we're going to give you a six-month sentence, a sentence, you know, this is kind of a Martha Stewart sentence. Six months in a white-collar camp and a deal of a lifetime. And Ginger begged me to sign it. And I looked at Ginger and I said, you're the reason why I'm in this mess. And I ripped up that six-month plea agreement. I fired the lawyer who recommended it. Went and hired a whole group of lawyers, fought the case for another three years through the courts, and got eight and a half years instead. Wow! And I had six months sentence right in front of me.
3: We'll get back to our conversation in just a minute, but first, Sarah and Ken will share a bit about the transforming power of executive coaching.
2: Ken, do you remember when you first hired an executive coach?
1: Yes, it was one of those times when I could feel the seasons changing. It wasn't the old season, and yet it wasn't the new one. Something new, though, was coming. My work responsibilities were ramping up, and my role was shifting from managing the work to leading the organization. In addition, Jennifer and I were expecting our fourth child, and my roles of father and husband were expanding as well. It seemed I was leading everywhere at church, I was leading a book club, everywhere I go, it seemed like I was in this leadership position. And I remember just feeling anxious that I was not prepared for the challenges ahead. That's when I hired a coach who dedicated time and expertise just to helping me navigate this new season.
2: Hmm. So what was the coaching like?
1: Well, at first it was a new experience for me because uh, he asked me lots of powerful questions and he challenged me to get clear about my values. And uh, together we developed a plan for moving forward. Uh, The result was that I was much more in touch with who I am and who God was calling me to become. Years later, I've been through many seasons of change and I still have a coach. And now I find myself on this team of executive coaches right here at VOCA Center.
2: It sounds like coaching is now an integral part of helping you get clarity as you lead. Likewise, we wanna provide that same clarity for you, our listeners. When you find yourself in need of support, challenge, or insight for your leadership, then it's time to invest in coaching. Whatever season you find yourself in, we're here to provide a safe and empowering space for your development.
1: To get started, sign up for a free consultation and we'll craft a coaching plan together. You can sign up at vocacenter.org coaching.
2: Now back to our conversation.
3: So when you, were, when you were sentenced to prison, that was a real inflection point. Things started to, obviously your life was going to change, but I mean, things started to change on the inside for you around that time too. Tell us about that.
0: Well, I tell you, first I, I was falling apart, Chip. I mean, when I knew I had eight and a half years to do on a 10-year sentence, you get 15% off for good behavior on a federal case. There's no parole in the federal system. And I thought, how am I going to do eight and a half years when I could have done six months? I would have had immunity if I would have never wrote those checks to myself. said, how am I going to do eight and a half years? And I tried to take my own life. I tried to kill myself a month before I went to prison. Wow. And I was hospitalized for about a month. And uh, during that time, some people reached out to me. A guy named Ian Howes from the pharmaceutical industry read about me in the newspaper, reached out and started discipling me. And then right after I entered prison, another guy reached out to me named Chuck Colson, who went to prison for the Watergate uh, you know, for the Watergate crimes back in the seventies. So those two guys discipled me and mentored me. And, and I'd never listened about God from Ginger, but at this point I was broken. I just tried to kill myself. I was looking for hope. And I tell you what, I started really listening to them about God. And after a few months, I surrendered my life to Jesus. This would have been 1998, my third month in prison and my life changed, completely changed. And I was $20 a month for eight and a half years after 2 or $3 million a year for eight years.
3: Wow. Wow. And that process of coming to faith, you still had questions. You still, you know, you still had things that you, were, you struggled with, I believe, just, you know, just your scientific background. Say a little bit about that. Yeah,
0: I did. You know, with having a Ph.D. and a bachelor's and master's from Ohio State, Ph.D. from Cornell, I had professors at Cornell say, say boy, if you believe in God, you can't be in my class. If you believe in God, you can't be a a PhD scientist. And and I kind of thought during that time, I said, well, there's no scientist that believes in God. So the science was a block for me, and Chuck Colson really helped me get through that, sharing with me article after article and book after book, and one book in particular about scientists, good ones, strongly. Even Albert Einstein said, the Big Bang Theory is impossible. Only God could create the universe. So strong scientists that I had a lot of respect for that believed in God Started really showing me other evidence beyond that supported the Bible.
3: Wow! So you got this faith. This faith thing is happening and growing while you're in prison. Um, you're making twenty dollars a day. Uh, your twenty dollars a month. Twenty dollars a, a month. Sorry. Sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> big difference. Um, you can tell, I'm not. The, I'm not a CFO. Um, um, you know, your whole life, your whole fam- you know, the whole life of your family has been, I'm, I'm assuming you lost pretty much everything. And we did. What happens to your family? Uh, and you've said this before, and I know this too, that you know, most most couples where one's incarcerated don't, don't survive. I mean, what, what happened during that period of time, uh, kind of on the personal side?
0: Well, when I tried to take my own life before prison, I read that 78% of people who get incarcerated get divorced. And, and 99% if you serve five years and longer. So I thought, well, I'm not going to have a marriage. That's another reason why I tried to take my own life. I thought, who's going to hire me coming out at age 49, going at age 40, come out at 49? Who's going to hire me? Convicted felon after nine years in prison. So I thought, why live? It's why I tried to take my own life. And the amazing thing is, is that God, when I surrender my life to Jesus, how God started turning that around. First thing he did, he had Cornell professors. Some of them became Christians, and they came and visited me and started bringing pharmaceutical and biotech companies with them and introduced them to me. And they had me review their patents and their strategic plans and to keep my mind active while I was in prison. And four of those offered me jobs the day I got out of prison. And one of them I joined the day I got out of of prison. prison. And I eventually became the COO of that company uh, after several years, after four promotions. And then the companies that... ADM stole from, ADM paid billions of dollars, $3 billion back to all these clients. Uh, one client alone, Coca-Cola, $400 million, the largest victim of the price-fixing scheme for high-fructose corn syrup. Well, they put an $800,000 whistleblower reward together out of their class-action settlements and gave to Ginger for a whistleblower reward. So mm-hmm. she survived, survived by the very companies... That I was stealing from in the price fixing scheme supported my family, put my kids through college, put Ginger back in college to be a school teacher. Uh, supported by the very victims of the case. Wow, wow! And you're even working for Coca-Cola now. I'm working for the company, literally heading a division that I stole from 30 years ago.
3: It's amazing. Another that's miracle. miracle. Yeah, it's amazing. So you you stayed together, you were pro- provided for, you got out, you got a job. Um, tell us just a little, like what's life look like since and how do you view, how have you viewed your work since?
0: Well, I'd like to say this, um, Ginger, you know, with winning that whistleblower reward and she would move with good behavior in federal prison, you move to a better place. So I went from Yazoo where I started, she moved there. Then I got moved to a better place with good behavior, Edgefield, South Carolina. I heard my kids move there. Then I did my last five years on a Navy base in Pensacola, Florida, and, Ginger mo- and my kids moved there. They moved to three different states and visited me every Friday evening and all day Saturday and all day Sunday. There's about five wives out of 700 inmates. 99% divorce rate right. for five years and longer. So, I mean, a miracle that every weekend that she came, um, it was amazing. And they wrote a book about, about all that and even added up the days from, her, from prison records and added up to three years and eight months that she said eight hours in a prison visiting room. Wow.
3: Three years and eight months.
0: Yeah, when you add up her days just <laughs> from, those, from those weekends and holidays. And then, so when I got out, I joined a company with a Christian CEO named Cypress Biotech. I didn't want to fall into that greed trap. I was so used to a public company. Every three months, we looked what our earnings was going to be. The whole reason for the price fixing was to drive up the earnings, drive up the stock price, and then we get all these stock options that drive up our own compensation Hmm. as executives. So that was the reason behind the fraud. And I was looking for something long-term, and I joined a company where cancer research trials, and they're like five-year trials, ten-year trials... And I was several years with that company. I just joined Coke here a little over a year ago, and I became the COO of that company, and I'm still on their advisory board hmm, today. Okay. But I wanted to get something thinking real long-term and not fall into that greed trap again like I had before in my
3: 30s. So some of the choices you made in terms of what you would do helped put some guardrails there in your life, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, tell us just, uh, we're going to bring Sarah and, Sarah and Ken back here in just a minute, but tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Coke Consolidated. And then yeah. uh, we'll we'll open it up to some questions. So
0: Yeah, work for Coke Consolidate. I hit up a division called T Factor, which stands for transformation. Or this is Coca-Cola consolidated, the bottling side. We have our own CEO, their own board. It's a separate company than the Coca-Cola in Atlanta. We're headquartered in Charlotte. An amazing company with the with the purpose statement is to honor God in all we do. And we have prayer groups. We pray before our meetings. We have discipleship ongoing, mentorship going on. I mean, it's an amazing company. And then in T-Factor, we bring in CEOs and top executives from other companies, and we share how we've integrated faith the last 22 years out of our 118-year history and how that's transformed our culture to a very servant-leader, long-term thinking, purpose-driven culture.
3: That's awesome, and we
0: share that with other executives how we do that.
3: That's great. So you're multiplying all the lessons, and it's, it's yeah, sad. discipleship it's type stewarding all the things you've learned through this amazing ascent, crash, and rebuilding uh, of your life. Sarah, lead us off. First question. Right.
2: Well, Mark, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, it is I think hearing the story from you is even better than watching Matt Damon in the movie. Uh, I thought this.
0: Well, the movie was a crime drama. There was definitely no redemption story in that movie,
2: right? And your story is a redemption story. And I think, at our in our heart, we all long for that redemption story. Though, um, you know, the, the the riches to rags to God restoring, um, what was God restoring you? So, my question, one of my many questions, is. What spiritual disciplines um, help you stay centered on the Lord, help you avoid falling into those um, patterns of addiction?
0: Well, a couple things. Uh, one, my quiet time is really important to me. Uh, two is a, what, what I call Paul in your life. Just like Paul and Timothy in Scripture on 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul is discipling Timothy, I strongly believe that we all need a Paul in our life like Chuck Colson was in my life uh, during that time, uh, you know, in prison and when I got out. And I have another guy that now pours into my life. But I believe we need someone to hold us accountable, someone that's wiser than us, been on this journey longer than us. So I feel like a Timothy, and, and he's a Paul that pours into me. But then I also believe that we all should be a Paul ourselves. I think we should be mentored, and I think we should be mentoring others. So I have five younger executives that I'm actually mentoring, that I'm their Paul and they're my Timothys, And I tell you that just is such a rewarding and I've been doing that 15 years since I've been, since I've got out of prison, this Paul Timothy relationship, being mentored and discipled and discipling others that are younger in their faith than me. To me, it's paramount. Wow. That's great. So
1: uh, folks, if you'd like to ask a question, go ahead and type it into the Q and a box there and I'll be curating these questions. Um, So first question I wanted to ask you, Mark, Ah, uh, this person writes, uh, it seems like you've had two careers, two different places in your life where you were in corporate organizations. I guess this is the before and after. How did your sense of leadership and your sense of scientific discovery change during
0: those periods of time? Well, I tell you, I'd say here's how my life changed. once, reading about other scientists and learning from other scientists how they believe in in God. One that really impacted me in prison that I read my first year in prison that, that Chuck Colson shared with me, was a book titled, Surprise by Faith. A scientist named Don Byerly. He was he was actually trying to prove to all his friends that God did not exist. And after doing all this scientific uh, scientific study, it proved to him that God does exist and Jesus is the Son of God. And he wrote the book called, Surprise by Faith, by Don Byerly. It had a huge impact on me my third month in prison when I surrendered my life to Jesus. Other books and other articles do, but a huge impact. So one, I believe... I believe God owns it all. Psalm 24, 1. God owns it all. He created the universe and we're just stewards of God's resources. Our families, our finances, our jobs, our companies. It's all God's. And I'm... what I call uh, BAM, businesses, ministry. This is all God's, and we're just stewards for that. So that's one thing it changed. And another thing is, when I look at myself in my 30s, it was so much, I want to get the next promotion. I want to get the next bonus. It was all about me, an example of selfish leadership. I mean, it was it was almost narcissistic. How can I continue to move up the corporate ladder and be the next CEO at some point in my life, especially being all in my 30s and have so much of a... a, a you know, a long track uh, at my career opportunity there. I had a chance to be the COO or CEO of ADM at that time. And so it was all about me. And now when I got out of age 49 and back in the last 15 years into corporate America, I looked at it, it's all about everybody else, serving our employees, serving our customers, serving our vendors. And that's just been so rewarding. And I, and I tell you how I found out that was rewarding is, is that in prison I started discipling guys, just like Chuck Olson would Disciple and me and at $20 a month, helping them get their GEDs, helping someone learn how to read in prison. And I just found how rewarding that was because I never helped somebody in my life until I went to prison. It was yeah. all about wow. me.
1: All right. Well, <clears throat> that's really helpful. I'm going to launch a poll now and ask people, what do they want to hear a little bit more from Mark on some several topics there that he touched on? And you can vote for that, and we'll follow up in just a minute. You mentioned Chuck Colson, Mark, and uh, David writes in and wants to know, how did you meet him? Was he in your prison? Tell us about that story of meeting Chuck Colson and what that was like.
0: Yeah, well, Chuck Colson was in the prison in the mid-70s, so 20 years earlier than me for Watergate. Uh, You you know, He he worked White House Counsel for President Nixon. So he actually read about me. He was chairman of Prison Fellowship. He had 1,000 employees, 30,000 volunteers, and he thought, if he's going to expect these employees and volunteers to go disciple and mentor inmates in prison, he ought to have at least one himself. And he read about me in the Washington Post. It was my second week in prison. It had about my case, and how I tried to take my own life. How I threw a six-month plea agreement in the trash can, and he thought, i got to meet that guy. And he came to visit <laughs> me in my second week in prison. He discipled me for the nine years that I was in prison, and he discipled me until he died, in 2012, which was my first six years that I was out of prison. And he was like a father to me, oh like a father God. to me.
1: Wow. Wow, that's great. Um, all right, so I've got a poll going and I want you to to speak to the results of this poll. Um, right now it looks like we've got a tie between two topics. So let's see if we can go into these two topics. First one, you just pick up where you left off. Uh, Several people want to know. Talk about surrendering your life to Jesus in prison. Can you go deeper? You talked about Chuck Colson being an influencer and a discipler for you, but but how did you make that decision? It, I mean, just because Chuck Colson shows up doesn't mean you want to make a major life change and
0: start uh, going, you know, turning your life over to Christ, does it? What 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 was that like? Well, two guys, Ian Howes from CBMC, Christian Businessman Connection, and Chuck Colson were both mentoring and discipling me at that time. I had the science block, eight years of college, saying, boy, if you believe in Jesus, you can't be a scientist. So that was a huge problem uh, for me. But it was these dozens of articles and books that Chuck Colson sent to me of scientists that I respect and great scientific evidence. I really thought at that point there was no Ph.D. scientists that believed in God prior to that. But when I saw how many Ph.D. scientists that believed in God and how good ones did and what evidence why they believed in God... I tell you, it, the, it brought the Bible alive to me. I wanted to believe the Bible as I was reading it, you know, before I, kind of as I was entering prison and right before when Ian Howe started disciple me, but it took removing that scientific block. It was on June 4th, 1998. I just finished that night before that Don Byerly book, Surprised by Faith. And I got down on my knees and surrendered my life to Jesus. I thought, how as a scientist can you not believe in God after everything I just studied and everything I read?
1: Wow. All right, so the other thing people want to know about is is working today as a convicted felon, and I want to put a finer point on it. Um, What would convince a company like Coca-Cola to hire a person like you? I mean, we we, we can see that that's a tremendous... um, impossibility for most companies and for most people.
0: How did that really come about? Well, really the first company even even more challenging, a cancer research company, I was a liaison with the FDA. This was 2006, you're talking years earlier, 14 years earlier and before I joined Coca-Cola Consolidated. I, I tell you, it, for one, they visited me for those eight years I was in prison, executives did, and they got to know me, and they got to know my story, and, and, and they saw that I was that God transformed me, that I was a different person, and really that I got rid of that greed addiction, that Jesus helped me get rid of that greed addiction and was thinking more about serving other people and serving our customers around us and making society a better place, uh, you know, leaving, leaving the world than when I came in. But really a, a more of a life of significance compared to this life of success that was defined by the way the world defines it. Big house, big title, a lot of money, And then they saw a changed man. And after they get to see that for years, you know, eight and a half years when I was in prison, they took a chance and kind of started me off kind of a a job like right out of college. And I had four promotions and I became the COO of that company. And then Coca-Cola Consolidate sees that, you know, over this decade of me in that position. And they had me come and speak to their executives and speak at some of their T-factors. And they got to know me. And they saw a changed man from what they, compared to what they read about when I was in my thirties. Wow. Hmm. wow. So trust, you know, just trust and just proven beyond, you know, just just proving that you're beyond reproach.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And, and that's a real testimony to the power of, of Jesus, that he can change a life to that extent. And uh, it's not just lip service. It sounds like it changed your behavior, your attitude. And um, people people believed in you.
0: And I think he touched their hearts, too. I think he touched their hearts, too. Yeah. You know, Ken, I mean, he touched the hearts of the people like the FBI agents started visit me in prison. All four of my FBI agents, my judge and my prosecutor, are all trying to get me a presidential pardon. They're really working hard now with this current, you know, with a week left. I mean, lobbying real hard. The very people that convicted me, four FBI agents, a prosecutor and a judge, are probably my biggest cheerleaders trying to get me pardoned. No matter if I got pardoned or not, God pardoned me. But the fact that they forgave me and support me like that to me is a miracle.
1: Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's also a miracle that you that your wife stayed married to you. I mean, goodness gracious. So, how did you repair the damage that was caused to your marriage? Pamela wants to know. And does she go on the speaking circuit and share her experience too? Yes, she
0: does. Matter of fact, she's in a different room sharing right now with a women's group, uh, sharing her testimony. She shares quite a bit. And, you know, we're 41 years married, be 42 this coming June. And she was on the news, on CBS News, when the movie came out in 2009, 11, 12 years ago. And I remember they asked her, they said, Ginger, it's a 99% divorce rate. How do you do it? How'd you do it? She's on national TV. I'm in a different meeting in California. She's in New York City for this interview. And Ginger said, you know what? I wanted to leave. I wanted to run. But God told me to, to, to love him unconditionally and just to keep loving him, even when I didn't love him, God told me to stay with him. And she said, so I did that. And then they, she said, so divorce wasn't an option because God wouldn't allow it. But she said murder was, and she considered it twice, right on national TV. And they asked her, they said, well, when would you want to murder the most? She said, well, when I first heard about the $9 million, I wasn't very happy. But when he took a six-month plea agreement, threw it in a trash can, I really wanted to kill him. <laughs> and then they asked her, what would have happened if, if I would have signed that six-month plea agreement? And she said, you know, looking back all those decades, I think my husband would have came out the same greedy man he came in. I don't think he would have even listened to an Ian Owls and a Chuck Colson, and he would have been the same greedy man he went in. God gave him exactly what he needed, which was nine years in prison.
1: Wow.
0: So she sees it was a blessing not to sign the six-month agreement at this point in life, right? Yeah,
2: <laughs> not back then. No, <laughs> oh, back then.
0: Yeah.
1: It sounds like she's been on quite the journey too. Yes. Yeah. Um, you, know, you talked about the greed addiction, and you know, there's a lot of faith-based investors now that are trying to find opportunities where they're avoiding the ill-gotten gains and they're embracing companies that are really adding value to multiple stakeholders. This is uh, Jeff's question. You know. They're trying to invest in companies that are doing right by their customers and employees and the supply chain and the community and the environment. Any thoughts about that? that oh, yeah, have? I think
0: those are great. As a matter of fact, I'm on two advisory boards. One of them called Ambassador Development Group, ADG, and they invest only in Christian-led, Christian CEO-led companies. And then another one I just joined recently, One Flourish in Silicon Valley, which also invest in private equity that only invest into Christian-based, faith-based companies. I think that's a big part of the future, and I think we need more of that. We need more Coca-Cola consolidated, more Hobby Lobbies, more Chick-fil-A's. We need that not to become not the minority. We need it to become the majority. It will change our society if so tremendously yeah and and how do
1: you think that would change business can you speak to that
0: oh yeah it makes so much business so much more transparent so much more honest you wouldn't see all these shenanigans like what we did at adm all this fraud and cheating and i mean it would be so good for society so good for business i mean it would be look at hobby lobby for example they give 50 percent of their profits away each year what an impact that is having on society we need that in multi. We need that in most of the companies, instead of just this few that are scattered out there.
1: Wow. Well, Chip, I feel like we're. Uh, this is inspiring. you know, this is uh, it makes me. It makes me encouraged to be on on the team with Christ, speaking on behalf of, you know, the one who can do this kind of transformation.
3: Yeah, it's amazing. And as Mark, I've heard you say, it's the miracles of God. It's just one after the other, after the other, after the other. Uh, And it's in in bright color in your life. And um, so we're really grateful. There is one more question that Sarah didn't get to ask, which is where is the green lamp right now?
0: Well, you know, they have in the FBI museum all the equipment I wore undercover in Washington, D.C., the recorders and so on, the green lamp actually got broken on another case, that white collar case that was used after that. So that's one item that's not in the FBI museum because this was the largest price fixing case in US history at the time. I think it's third largest today. Mm-hmm. I was the all highest right. level still, you know, ex- highest level executive become a whistleblower. So it, it became this big case. So all that became went in the museum with the exception of that green lamp that, that got broken along the journey <laughs> after our case.
3: They couldn't update their model lamp for the next, their next investigation. They had to keep using it over and over again. That might be an example of efficiency, so I, maybe we shouldn't criticize that, or at least uh, thrift. All right, team, let's talk about our takeaways. Here's mine. Without a solid center, we are vulnerable to all sorts of self-destruction. You know, there are other sources of perspective and stability, but I, I don't think there's anything like the power of God to change a life. You know, Mark's journey of faith, his journey toward faith in Jesus, included wrestling with his hopelessness and intellectual doubts. Both were answered. And now we have this incredible example of a life completely transformed by Christ. How about you, Ken? Yeah, and his, his story really cues up for me,
1: like, how to recover morally from these failures at work. None of us is perfect at work, right? So if we do make a mistake at work, well, how do we deal with it? I think that there are three things we can do. Number one, we admit it, right? We say, hey, uh, the, not only did I make a mistake here, we, and we can call it sin, right? There's the biblical uh, word for it. But we can also say, here's the heart condition behind my behavior. And you saw Mark do that with the word greed. He said that it was greed that was motivating me. Second, apologize. Tell coworkers, I don't want these things to be true about me. This is behavior I want to change. And then finally, accountability. Invite coworkers into the process and say, hey, if you see me doing this or that, you've got my permission to pull me aside and say, hey, I'm noticing this about you. Get me back on track. So this combination of things can help, I think, make our work life less toxic for other people and for us and help get us back on the right path. What are your what are your thoughts, Sarah?
2: Thanks, Ken, I I like your uh, triple A's of recovering from moral failure at work, admit it, apologize for it, and hold yourself accountable. And Chip, I hear what you're saying about Mark's journey to faith being a, um, a great example of how life can be completely transformed. But I'm sort of struck by this idea of how is it possible to stand by your man and stand by the truth at the same time? I think Mark's wife, Ginger, really demonstrated this when she turned Mark into the FBI and stayed committed to their marriage while he was in prison for nine years.
3: It's really amazing. It's an amazing story. So as we wrap up, we want to encourage you to apply Mark's story to your own journey. Think about how you can, number one, maybe stand by a spouse or friend who is dealing or going through a mess of their own making. Uh, How can you address weaknesses and moral failure in your own life at work? And how can you explore the claims of Jesus and his power to transform your life and give you a solid center from which you can navigate all the ups and downs that are inevitable in any career? At VOCA, we know everybody wins when a leader gets better. You win, your team wins, and even your family and friends win. But it's impossible to get better alone. Leaders need someone safe with whom to process decisions and strategy. Leaders need a trusted thought partner to sort through the demands and opportunities on their plate and then create their best path forward. We deliver that space. We deliver that space through executive coaching, which is confidential professional development tailored to your goals. Sign up for a free consultation at vocacenter.org consult to start the conversation with one of our trained, experienced, faith-driven coaches. Everyone wins when a leader gets better, so let's explore your better together.
1: This interview was recorded in front of a live virtual audience and you can be a part of that audience and help shape the conversation. You can register to join us by signing up for the next live webinar at vocacenter.org webinar. We'll see you next time on the Resilient Faith at Work podcast where you get insight and inspiration to thrive at
0: work.